Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. folks for uh, reading our scripture today. Uh, again, if I have not met you, my name is Stephen. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at City on the Hill. So glad that you could be with us today. If you're a guest, uh, we, we welcome you doubly for, for being here today on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, and so if you are a guest, make sure to fill out that connection card. For doing so, we, we will be sure to give you uh, two free gifts. One is a free book, uh, an ebook that we'll send you, as well as a coffee gift card to Brassica Coffee Shop, which is right around the corner. In my opinion, the best coffee in Boston, I, and, and I am not a paid spokesperson. We have Duncan here this morning, so I promise I'm not a paid spokesperson. Uh, so uh, again, uh, w- thank you again, folks, for reading the scriptures. Um, our vision as a church is to see every person from every culture experience the gospel. And th- those that is really connected to um, our values as a church, uh, experiencing the gospel. And when we say experiencing the gospel, we want people to experience that personally. Uh, and that's our value of the gospel, that the gospel is the good news uh, that anyone who wa- wants a relationship with God can have a relationship with God through Jesus by placing their faith and trust in what Christ has done. We're given a new relationship with God that everything that keeps us from God, our sins are taken away and uh, we are made new and and given new life to be with God. And anybody can enter into that. And so if you've not entered into that relationship, we'd love to talk with you after the service about the next step in taking that journey. Um, And also we wanna see the uh, people experience the gospel corporately. And so we believe as a church, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago as the uh, the communion of the saints. Um, The way we believe we grow best is in relationship with each other. So we get together both formally and informally, and we believe that community is where we grow the most. But also we wanna see our city changed by the gospel. We wanna see people in our city experience the hope of Jesus, and that's mission, um, that the gospel is just too good to keep to ourselves. So we tell others about what Jesus has done for us, but also we live life shaped by what Jesus has done for us for the good of our neighbor and for the good of our city. A few announcements before we jump into the text today. Um, if you're new with us, be sure to grab a donut, hang out for a minute, um, talk to somebody, uh, make sure you meet somebody before you leave today. Uh, our um, summer groups are gonna be wrapping up, not this week, but next week. We've been doing men's groups and women's groups this summer. Uh, but starting in September, we're gonna be getting back into our ry- rhythm of community groups. And so community groups are about eight to 12 adults who get together weekly, uh, share, uh, often share a meal, uh, study the Bible together, and just really take time uh, to to dig into each other's lives. And they do things throughout the week as well. And so we'll have signups in the month of September to help you get connected to a group if you're not already uh, connected to one. So be, look, be on the lookout for those signups. And then coming up on September 1st is the big move. Um, we're not sure what our, our broad corporate um, uh, you know, uh, involvement is gonna be in the big move because of COVID. But I really do encourage you in your neighborhood, if you see somebody moving in, man, go lend a hand for like five minutes, say hello, invite that person over for coffee, maybe invite them to church if, if, if the conversation goes well, but just kind of keep that uh, on your radar. Now, this morning, we're going to be wrapping up our series on the Apostles' Creed. We've been looking at the Apostles' Creed as the basics and the basis of what Christians believe and have believed for the last 2,000 plus years. And really, when we think about what we believe, this is the very basics. We recited this a few minutes ago, these ideas of a belief in God, a belief in a, in a triune God, a God who's one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What Jesus came to do, born of a virgin, um, he came 
came and, and suffered. Um, he, he was fully God, fully man. He was crucified, died, buried, and rose again. These are the very core of what we believe about God, but also the core of what we believe about his people as the church, that God has called us together as a people um, and that we're called together uh, with people from all across the world, all across time, together as the church universal, but we express that locally as the communion of the saints. The local church is where we embody the gospel and we wanna be a church that is formed by the gospel, meaning that the way we treat each other, the way we care for each other, everything we do really goes back to what Jesus has done for us. And so the scorecard, if we have one, is based on Jesus, not based on our own uh, perception of what goodness looks like. So I want to say thank you to Matt Harris, who uh, he's on vacation this week, but he stepped in last week for me while I was on vacation and talked about the forgiveness of sins. At the core of this is the forgiveness of sins, that we have been forgiven by Jesus, that there's not a single person here this morning who is better than another when it comes to standing before God that every single one of us needs the forgiveness of our sins and every one of us can have our sins forgiven through trusting Jesus. And this morning, we're going to take some time to look at the last couple of statements in the Apostles' Creed, the idea that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, to give you a little bit of a, a peek of where we're going, in the next three weeks, we're gonna be looking at the idea of renewal, um, what, I mean, what personal renewal looks like, what renewal as a church looks like, and then city renewal. We're going to take three weeks to look at that. And then in September, we're going to be jumping into a 15-week series on the book of Ephesians. So we're going to be going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, beginning to end. So really, really excited for that. But today we're going to be looking at the idea of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, when it comes to what we believe as Christians, I'm going to be honest. So we believe some weird stuff. We believe some stuff that can be hard to grasp and get our heads around. And one of these is the idea that there's something after this life. Because most people in our world do not believe there's anything beyond what we're doing right now. That what we're doing here on a Sunday morning is we're just really enjoying a beautiful day and really don't think that there's anything beyond this, much less that there's a God who has created all of this. And so kind of our secular world believes that our belief in heaven, that we have hope beyond this is kind of just primitive superstition, that this is just kind of pie in the sky, fairy tale. In fact, Karl Marx, you know, the father of Marxism said that religion was the opiate for the masses. It was just something to kind of get us through life so that we didn't worry about why things were so bad. But when we look at our hearts and we look at every single person, there are these echoes and these longings for something more. Every single person is longing for an idea of heaven. And you see this all over modern culture and modern society. Just look at politics. And this is not a political sermon. We're not going there today. But look at both the left and the right. Both the left and the right have a vision for what utopia would look like. If these certain things would happen on the right, then the world would be better. If these certain things happen on the left, it'd be better. So if we had you know, the perfect set of government programs or we just were able to protect the free market, if we could do one of these two things, we could lead to a world and a society that was a utopia. A utopian vision is the idea of heaven on earth. And what this does, both of these ideas, and there's lots of other ways that we do this, it just reflects this longing that we would be restored to a right relationship with God. It's broken and it's, and it's disjointed and it's, it's, it's disordered, but it's really this longing that someone and something would come and make the world right and put things in the order that, and, and may help them function the way that they're supposed to. All of these things are a longing for heaven. And as humans, this, this shouldn't surprise us because we believe we've been made in the image of God. So we cannot help but long for heaven. 
We cannot help but long for something beyond ourselves because when we really think about it, deep down in our hearts, we know that we're made for more than this. Because of the fact that we can see, can conceive that there's something more must mean that there is something more. And even if you don't realize that these are spiritual longings, they definitely are. And so our belief in the resurrection of the body and a life everlasting beyond this life is not a fairy tale. It is actually a hope that anchors us here on earth. It's a vision for what life could be like. And so how you think about life after this world really determines how you live. So if you don't think that there's anything beyond what we're doing right now, then of course, you're simply just living to have the best life you could possibly have right now. And if you really take that out to its nth degree, it doesn't matter who you run over. It doesn't matter who you use. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you get everything that you can out of this life. You're squeezing as much juice as you can from the orange. For some of us, we don't really think about it at all. We Maybe we say we believe it, but we're not really all that concerned. So really the way we live, we kind of drift aimlessly through life. It's kind of like the old story that C.S. Lewis told about a man sitting on a train and the man was reading his newspaper and he and the man walks up to him and says, hey, um, what are, do you know where this train is going? He said, I don't know. I'm just really enjoying this paper. That's how a lot of us approach life. We're kind of just wandering through life or we could, there's another into the spectrum where we're just so concerned about what happens after this life that we really don't think that what happens here matters at all. But really as Christians, our future hope in a resurrection changes how we live today. And that's the big idea that we're gonna unpack is that our hope of a future resurrection changes how we live today that both eternity and now can matter. And so we're going to unpack this idea through 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And this idea of a future hope tells us two things. The future resurrection means, first of all, that we don't rely on ourselves. You don't have to rely on yourself. And then secondly, the future resurrection changes our view of our bodies. And so let's unpack that first idea. The future resurrection means that you don't rely on yourself. And when we look at this passage in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, we need to understand the context of who this is being written to. Uh, the city of Corinth uh, was a wild city. This was, imagine, this is like Las Vegas on steroids. It's like Las Vegas, New York City, London, everything kind of slammed together into one city. It is constantly going, constantly moving. Uh, and so a lot of people say, a lot of, of commentators have said the fact that a church could take root in a city like this is an absolute miracle. It's a miracle that, uh, that a church could take root there because it was so, the city was so devoted to paganism and idolatry and to sex and to success. You could not imagine a church thriving there. And so it's a miracle that they would be able to plant a church there and start a church there. But you can also imagine that as you're planting and starting a church there, those people who are involved in those people who are coming to faith in Jesus and stepping out of these old lifestyles, they're gonna face some resistance. And so Paul writes this letter in order to encourage them in the middle of their suffering. We see this in verses three and four. He roots this comfort in who God is. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction. The idea that we can be comforted by God in our suffering is rooted in who God is. And Paul takes this idea, basing it in who God has been in the past. You go all the way back into the Old Testament, you see, uh, you see passage after passage after passage about how God was a comforter to his people. 
We get this idea that sometimes that the, the God of the Old Testament is kind of this mean God who's like throwing lightning bolts through your chest. And we imagine the God of the New Testament as some sort of nice, really happy God who never says anything mean, but it's the same God all the way through. There is a God in the Old Testament who is just as loving and just as kind. And there's a God in the New Testament who will one day come to judge the living and the dead. God's wrath and his, and his mercy are not at odds with each other. His love and his justice are not at odds with each other. And we see a God who is willing to come and who's willing to comfort us. And so Paul uses his own affliction as a means to help show them how God comforts. In fact, he says in the next part here, he says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul was no stranger to suffering. It was also no stranger to God's comfort. And he does this by telling them and reminding them of his suffering. In verse eight, he gets really personal. Paul gets personal about his own experiences. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. It's almost like if you didn't know what happened, I'm gonna make sure that you know. And if you didn't know all the details and you don't, don't know the whole story, I'm gonna tell you the whole story. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Some people might have said, man, I, I knew it was bad in Asia, but I didn't know it was that bad. I didn't know it was so bad that you completely despaired of your own life, that you thought this was it. You thought you were done. If you've you ever uh, ridden with a car, in a car with a friend who's not a very good driver and you thought, oh my gosh, this is it. We're gonna die. I, I remember I was in, uh, in college and we were trying to go see the last Lord of the Rings movie. And it was over Christmas break and we had some friends in Atlanta and they said, hey, we got some tickets, but you've gotta be here in like an hour and 30 minutes. And so from Birmingham to Atlanta to get there in an hour and 30 minutes, you have to drive way too fast. We're driving down the interstate my friend's driving, it's pouring down rain. We're going, I'm not gonna tell you how fast because I need to repent of that. We're driving down the interstate and all of a sudden the car turns sideways and we are skidding. We skidded for, I think had to be like seven miles down I-20 until all of a sudden we spun and turned facing the opposite direction. I prayed more in that seven minutes or, or seven miles or whatever it was than I think I did in my entire life. I thought I was going to die. Paul is saying, I thought I was going to die. And we're not really sure the exact moment and the, what exactly Paul experienced that made him feel like he was about to experience death. But his letters give us some, some, some clues of some of the things that Paul faced. And this wasn't just a one-time thing for Paul. Paul suffered imprisonments. He suffered beatings, flogging, stoning. He was shipwrecked. He was adrift at sea. He was robbed, he, um, he faced angry mobs and he experienced hunger and thirst and the cold and exposure. He was betrayed by friends. All of these things Paul faced and we don't know what exactly he's talking about here, what exactly happened in Asia, but in verse nine, he, he gives us an idea of what it meant to despair on life. He said, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. I feel like we were gonna die. And some of you, have you ever been in that place where you just saw no way out? You, you saw that there was no possible way that you could manage. You saw that there was no possible way that good 
could come from this. And, and not all of us have experienced something to the level that Paul has experienced. I think just this week on, uh, on Haiti and, and the, the devastating earthquake that hit Haiti and the many people who've lost family members and friends and the devastation of property and the loss of life and, and just the suffering that comes with that. I think about uh, in, in Afghanistan right now as, as the Taliban is advancing and there's a, a reports of churches right now standing firm in the face of persecution. We don't face that type of suffering, but we've all despaired. We've all been left asking the question, why? Why, God? Why is this so hard? Why does it have to be that person? Why here? Why now? And so we, we, we think about our suffering and our struggles and suffering for many of us is the linchpin thing that keeps us from turning our hearts to God. But the reality is that the alternative doesn't give us a better answer. The fact that there is no God means that there is no point in our suffering. So what do we do with our suffering? Well, Paul's suffering kind of offers an interpretive grid to help us understand our suffering. He says in the other half of verse nine, he says, the reason this happened was, but that, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Our suffering causes us to rely on God when we wouldn't do so otherwise. Paul is, is suffering beyond his strength, something that he felt like was a death sentence. But the reason that God used it was to kill his self-reliance. Listen, we live in a city of capable people. Our neighbors are very capable people. As you think about the people who live in this neighborhood or live in your neighborhood, you're probably not here if you're not crushing it. Like you're doing a pretty good job at whatever you do if you live here. We have some of the most successful people in this congregation, some of the most successful people in this church. But the thing about being capable is it makes you susceptible to be being reliant upon yourself. And Paul was a very capable person. This was a guy who, before he became a Christian, was the dude. I mean, if you look at Philippians chapter three, this guy was good at everything. He was the most religious. He was the most successful. He was the best read. He was going to be good at whatever he did. And after he came to faith in Christ, this guy was an apostle. He's a prolific New Testament writer. In fact, half the New Testament Paul wrote if there's anybody who could rely upon themselves and rely upon their own efforts and their own abilities, it was Paul. But Paul said that God used all of these things to cause him to rely upon the Lord. Many of us were good at our jobs and we see most of life as a problem that we can solve. There's gotta be some sort of algorithm or logarithm, or I can use the Pythagorean theorem or something to figure out this part of my life, or I can just reason my way out of this problem. If I just put my head down and work hard enough, I can get through my troubles or I can outwork or outpace the things going on in my heart. And because we're so highly capable and highly driven, most of the time we don't shape our lives about, about around, being rely, or, uh, around relying upon the Lord because we have money and we have comforts and we have it pretty easy. But when was the last time that you were driven beyond your own capability? when you were driven to a place of complete desperation where you had to rely upon the Lord, have you ever been at that point? And if you've not been to that point, what will it take for the Lord to grab your attention? For Paul, it was extreme suffering. And Paul did not see this as a punishment from God, but he saw this as really beautiful grace. 
that caused him to depend upon a God who, it says here in verse uh, nine, could deliver someone from the dead, who raises the dead. That if God is capable to raise the dead, we first see this in Jesus, the same power that is available to raise Jesus from the dead can meet us in the middle of our suffering. Look, I don't do trust well. I don't like trusting other people. I don't like relying on other people. Sometimes I don't like delegating things because I like to control stuff. And so the Lord seems to keep putting me in situations where I am forced. I see some people shaking heads going, yes, me too. Yes, Lord, I hear that. Like, I don't like, the Lord seems to keep putting me in situations to, to, to where I have to trust him. And so we are planting a church here. This is the second church that we planted. Uh, we planted a church in, in Birmingham, Alabama. And so when people ask, I usually, usually just say, yes, I was just dumb enough to do it a second time. And so uh, the people who came here and were a part of this, we're doing this a second time. And when it, when it comes to church planting, there's risk involved because you're, you're moving away from friends and family. You're uprooting. You got to raise money. You got to find a place to meet. Who knows, is, is God, God's got to show up for this thing to happen. And the Lord keeps putting me in positions where I have to trust him. Because when the Lord puts us in positions where we have to trust him and we have to rely upon him, the illusion that we're in control disappears. It disappears. And God does this to us, not because he gets some sort of sick pleasure, not because, uh, not because he's trying to punish us, but because he wants to remind us that he's faithful. He wants to remind us that he loves us and that he comes through on his promises. Verse 10, he delivered us from, a, from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. We set our hope on a God who has our future in his hands, that our future is secure and that his perfect plan is better for us than anything that we could possibly come up with. And what this does when we realize that our future is secure, it creates a joy in us when we realize that there is someone who loves me deeply, that I don't have to be self-reliant because my father in heaven cares for me completely. He actually wants better for me than I could ever want for myself. And this gives us hope for today because today is important, but today is not ultimate. And so for you, if life is not turning out like you hoped it would turn out, it's okay. If tomorrow I get the worst news possible and I'm diagnosed with a, a terminal illness, it's gonna be okay. Because we have a God who loves us and who raised the dead. Because for us, death is not final. We have a world around us that is decaying. And that's why I think we feel like we have to hold everything together, but we don't have to because we have a God who cares for us and makes all things new. Look, we're not in control, even if we think we are. Going back to the car analogy, imagine that you're, you're, when you're a little kid and you sit in your parents' lap and they let you drive the car. Who's actually driving the car? We just have the illusion that we're in control because we have a God who we rely upon for every breath. And the scripture says that every breath is a gift. We can only be comforted by God if we give up control to him like a child who skinned their knee but won't let their parents see it, knowing that the parent can give healing and comfort through a Band-Aid. When we fail to rely on God, we're just acting like atheists that we don't believe God is real. So what area of your life do you need to give to the Lord? In what area of your life do you need to rely upon God? The second idea is that the future resurrection changes our view of our bodies. It changes how we embody in this world, our, our physical bodies. Paul's words on deliverance here are really surprising. 
They're, they're really surprising. And so he's, he's talking in verse 10, not about just a soul deliverance, but a, but a physical deliverance. And as he talks about a future hope where we will be delivered again, he's also talking about a physical deliverance. What is he talking about here? He's clearly talking about the future. He's clearly talking about our hope in the resurrection. And I think where we get kind of confused on this is that most Christians have a wrong view of heaven. When we imagine heaven, we imagine our, we leave our bodies, our, our souls go to heaven and our body just kind of rots away. And so we imagine heaven is like running from cloud to cloud and like playing a harp. Some people think we become an angel. We don't become angels. Angels are a separate thing. That's, that's not what happens to us. The final hope in Christianity is a resurrected body. And, and so when you imagine this, we, we kind of get a truncated view of this because if you went to church as a kid, you might've heard, okay, well, when you die, you go to heaven, which is very true. But when God makes all things right one day, you will be reunited with a resurrected physical body. So in the Bible, life everlasting, it's not simply us going to a, somewhere else when we die, but one day there's gonna be a reunification of heaven and earth that on earth, everything will function as it is in heaven. And we see this picture in Revelation when it talks about the heavenly city coming down. And that when we see the heavenly city, the dimensions of the city are over the entire earth. It means that one day heaven will look a lot like earth because it will be a lot like earth. And in this new place, we're gonna have bodies. In this new heaven and this new earth, we're going to have physical bodies. We're going to be alive. We're going to be more alive than we ever have been. And so if we're going to have bodies in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, how does this change the way we view our bodies now? Well, I think it keeps us from both overemphasizing and underemphasizing our bodies. It keeps us from overemphasizing and obsessing about our bodies, but also thinking that they don't matter. We can just do whatever we want to. Look, there's a lot of body worship in our world. And I'm not just talking about the way that we, we, uh, we, we think about other people. I, I'm talking about the way we think about ourselves. And so I just joined CrossFit recently and CrossFit has a really bad reputation for being somewhat evangelistic. Uh, and so if someone does CrossFit, you don't have, they will tell you, you don't have to wonder about it. And so there are all these conversion stories to CrossFit. It's like, you know, I was unhappy, I was overweight. I started this program and now I feel good and I have friends. Man, that's church guys, like that's evangelistic. There's a daily worship service called a wad. It's a workout of the day. And it's like this bowing to the altar of self. We have this longing and desire for, for things in our bodies to be made right. Tom York, who's the lead singer of Radiohead, their most famous song, Creep, said, I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. We all have this longing for heaven and we see this in our bodies. And so why do we try to keep improving our bodies? Why do we try to keep going? Why do we worry about our cholesterol? Why do we go to the doctor? Why do we do these things? Because our bodies are failing us. We know that our bodies are breaking down and we long for this new body. Now, if you're young, you don't really realize it. When I was younger, I could just run and run and run all day and get up the next day and I was fine. Like, I injure myself getting out of bed in the morning at, at 39, almost 39. Like our bodies start to fail us. And if your body isn't failing you yet, it will one day. When your body fails you, you can have hope in a God who will one day raise the dead. Your body just starts, stops working properly over time. And now look, you might love the body that you have and, and you just get mad when it, when it lets you down or you might struggle because it's not the way you want. 
Maybe you have chronic pain. Maybe you have chronic struggles. Maybe there was a, a maybe you had an accident and you just can't do what you used to be able to do. It's going to be okay. We don't have to lie to ourselves and buy into the lie that if we don't have a perfect body in this life, if our if our, our physical self isn't functioning the way we want it to, that we're missing out on something. Because our physical failures, our physical struggles point us towards a Christ who loves us, towards a Christ who will make all things new. There's something true about the idea of us taking care of our bodies in Christianity. We're we're not disembodied people. Your body is important, but it's not ultimate. And one day our current body is gonna be remade and made perfect. And it's almost gonna be unrecognizable. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44, it says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This means that one day when everything is made new, there will be no more pain. There will be no more joint pain when we get up in the morning. There will, be, there will be no more headaches. There will be no more COVID. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no more of us saying that someone died before their time. And so when the creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, this means that we will live throughout eternity with God in a new heaven and a new earth as real people with real bodies that our, he- our citizenship will be with him. Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to e- even to subject all things to himself. Now listen, the Bible's not very detailed on what heaven's gonna be like. And I think we get most of our ideas about heaven from popular culture. Again, angels playing on clouds and streets of gold and all the, you know, white guy with a big beard. That's what we imagine heaven as. We don't get a lot of detail in the Bible though. But one of the most clear teachings in the Bible is that we will have this renewed body. And so how we use it now matters. It means that we can trust God with how we live and we can trust God with what happens to us. And so future hope eliminates both YOLO and FOMO. If you're not familiar with those terms, I will define them, I promise. Um, But we have this idea because we think this is it, that we just wanna pack everything that we can into this life. YOLO, the idea of you only live once. When we think like that, we think I've just gotta get everything I can in right now. That's why we run ourselves tired. That's why we run ourselves ragged. That's why we feel like we have to get in all of these experiences. And in fact, if you are under the age of 40, we are the generation of experience. We're not the generation of savings. We're not the generation of of buying property. We're like, man, we we know that the social security system is shot. So let's just spend all of our money now. And so we are the generation of experiences. But there's also the idea of FOMO, the, the fear of missing out. For so many of us, we're so worried that if I don't just if I don't do this and I don't have this relationship and if I, if I don't have this experience and I don't move to that city and if I don't take that job, then I'm this is a once in a life. Everything feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity. And the reality is, if this world is it, then absolutely, you are controlled and condemned by YOLO and FOMO that you only live once and you're gonna miss out. 
But the problem with even our most great, our greatest moments, when we say, man, I just wish that this would never stop is that they eventually do. But knowing that you live forever changes how you live today because our hope isn't here. Our hope is in heaven. And when our hope is in heaven and our heart aches for heaven, it means that every shed tear matters, that every sleepless night matters, that every lost loved one matters, but it means that we can still have joy in God in the midst of it. I love C.S. Lewis's old quote about aiming at heaven. He says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim in earth and you'll get neither. It seems a strange rule, but something like it can be seen at work in other matters. Health is a great blessing. But the moment you make health one of your main direct objects, you start becoming a crank and imagining there is something wrong with you. You're only likely to get health provided you want other things more, food, games, work, fun, open air. In the same way, we shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something else even more. When we keep our eyes fixed on heaven, it directs how we live here on earth. What are we gonna be doing in heaven? I Honestly, I, I don't know, but I know one thing we will do. We're gonna worship Jesus. And we're gonna worship Jesus with renewed bodies. And we're gonna do this for a really long time. And I imagine even in the new heavens and the new earth, we may work and we may spend time together, but we are going to worship Jesus. And we're gonna do this as the old song, Amazing Grace said, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We are gonna spend eternity in renewed bodies with renewed minds, praising God. And this gives us purpose for how we live here. And this gives us hope, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want you to long and to hope for heaven as you live here on earth. So when your desires seem like they are overwhelming, hope in a God who fulfills every desire. When your sufferings seem unbearable, hope in a God who bore your suffering on a cross. When your fears paralyze you, hope in a God who said that he would never leave nor forsake you. And when your body fails you, hope in the God who will make your body new. The text here says that the worst thing that could happen to us would be death. Paul is praying that he would be delivered from death. And in fact, the worst thing that could happen to any of us is that we will die. And every single person in this room or in this, in this room, in this yard will die. But the penalty of death has already happened to Jesus. That the sting of death has already been taken away. And that because of the sting of death has been taken away, our hope, if you've placed your faith in Christ, is that death is not the end of your story. So how do you need to respond this morning? For some of you, it may be to trust in Jesus to deliver you to trust in Jesus who paid for your sins and to give your life to him and to trust him as your king. For some of you, you may be struggling with something. Maybe it's, it's sin. Maybe it's something physical in your body and you just are praying and hoping that the Lord would heal you. Trust in the God who is with you in the midst of your suffering. Trust in the God who can heal, but even if he doesn't, trust that he is with you in it. Let's pray.